Hey, this is Brian McTurnan from Be Well, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we are back once again with a brand new episode. And we've got a great one for you today, folks. On the show, Joe McMahon of Smoke or Fire. This is a great conversation. We cover it all. We cover the band. We cover the Boston scene. We cover Joe's new life living in Europe. And yes, we even cover the legendary Burrito Max. Joe did, in fact, work there. That's all coming up shortly. You're going to love that conversation. But first, folks, my pleas for your support. You can support us, The New Scene, by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. I am on the push to get us over 3,700 Instagram followers. We're getting closer. We're like 50 away. So if you don't follow us, check us out on Instagram, New Scene Pod. Hit that follow button. Do the same on Twitter and TikTok. There's different content on each platform, so you'll get a little something different everywhere. Subscribe to our main and clips YouTube channels. The main channel has all of our full episodes of the show, as well as some other random stuff, songs and, you know, random show videos that I posted back in the day. You can check all of that out on the main YouTube channel. The clips channel has highlights from some of our favorite episodes of the show subscribe to those channels. And if you check out the videos, hit that like button or leave a comment. All of that interaction helps the channels out a lot. And we appreciate everybody who does that. We also have a shirt available for sale. Your purchase of this wonderful, beautiful, attractive shirt can help directly fund this podcast. Head on over to the store at Deathwish Inc. Search the new scene. The shirt will pop right up. It's a great shirt. You want it you need it, let's do it. And last but not least, folks, we are getting ever closer to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We are currently at 73 on Apple and 69, nice, on Spotify. We got to get over 100. We have to. We just have to. So if you like the show, if you're listening to this and you haven't done it, open up your Apple Podcast or Spotify application scroll on down to the rating system and give us five stars. And if you write a nice review on Apple Podcasts, I'll read it on the air. And I'm going to read a new review right now from Dank DC. Five stars. Cave-in interview I've always wanted to hear. A friend got me hip to this podcast with the Brian McTurnan interview. Amazing. Just listen to the one with Adam McGrath of Cave-in. This is the Cave-in interview I've always wanted to hear. The band was also my introduction to hardcore. Asked every question I was curious about, specifically the wild path the band has taken with their sound and activity over the past couple of decades. I was so curious to hear their perspective going from one sound to another and their fan base's reaction to it. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely, Dank DC. Thank you for the review. And the Adam McGrath episode is one of my favorites by far. I was dying to hear that story, and ask those questions myself. 
because they're questions I've always wanted to know. Because Caven is one of my all-time favorite bands. I was curious about the process. I was curious about how they went about it. And I don't know if that's been covered in other interviews before, but I was so happy that I got to have that conversation with Adam on this show. Okay, so don't forget to support our sponsor, Iodine Recordings. Iodine has signed a new artist. That's right, folks. Iodine has signed a new artist. So we welcome Best X to Iodine Recordings. Best X is singer, songwriter, Mariel Loveland, and it features elements of synth pop, indie rock, and 80s revival. Love it. Can't wait to hear more. Welcome to the label, Best X. Also, folks, pre-orders are up for the Darling Fire's latest LP on Iodine Recordings, Distortions. This band features members of Shai Halud, Further Seems Forever, Rocking Horse Winner, and As Friends Rust. It combines elements of shoegaze, post-hardcore, metal, and hardcore. If you're a fan of any one of those genres, you're going to love this record. I have heard an advance of the record. I love it. It's awesome. This will easily be one of the best records of 2022 on my list and many others. Definitely check it out. I really love it. There's a single out now for everybody to hear. It's called Machina. And when I first listened to this, the chorus kicked in and it gave me chills. Literal chills. Excellent band. Can't wait for everybody to hear the record. Pre-orders up. Go do it. You need it. You want it. Okay, so I've got another music recommendation for you. Folks, check out the band Foreign Hands and their latest EP, Bleed the Dream. It just came out this year. If you're into that classic melodic metalcore sound, think This Day Forward, think Taken, think Earlier Hopes Fall, think Earlier Poison the Well. If you dig that kind of stuff, you're going to love this. It's an excellent throwback to that sound, but with a modern touch-up. I love what they're doing. I love the EP. And I saw that the band did a This Day Forward tribute shirt. It was It's a shirt styled similar to how the uh, transient effects This Day Forward shirts looked. I really love that. Excellent throwback, gentlemen. Excellent. Love the record. Check them out. You can check them out wherever you get music. And I'm going to add them to the new scene 2022 Spotify playlist where we put all of our guests and the music recommendations that I recommend on the show. So there you go. Check back in with me at segment three to hear more from me. But folks, right now, we are going to speak to Joe McMahon of Smoke or Fire. Enjoy.
right, folks, we're here now with Joe McMahon. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. You know, we've been working on putting this together for a while, and you're here now. So I have to ask you, Joe, to kick things off. How are you doing today? Today, I'm doing all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. I mean, you know, it's a mixed bag. I'm trying to, I think like most people trying to take things day by day. That's That was my New Year's resolution because there's no, no point in really like looking back too far and looking forward too far these days. So today, pretty good. Yeah. That is the philosophy, in my opinion, because I mean, shit, ever since lockdown, everything has just been nuts and I've lost all concept of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. I talk to people and things come up and I'm like, was that last year or was that six years ago? <laughs> it's kind of like there's a mile marker in the beginning of 2020. And I don't know if things happened in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. I was on a call today and I, I was on with my boss and an associate. And I said, hey, guys, who is the solution analyst on this account? And they said, you are. <laughs> and I was and I was like, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's brought out. Maybe the pandemic has brought out some kind of like weird, weird kind of like way that w our internal clocks used to work going through like routine. And now that we've lost our routine, maybe it says a lot about like um, our concept of time. It's confusing. I, I seriously, there are days I look back. I can't remember if it was yesterday or like you know ten years ago. So where you are right now, it's eleven p.m. You're in Germany. Yes. How does a guy from Western Massachusetts end up living in Germany? Um, I mean, the first time that the first time that I came to Germany was um, we had got signed to Fat Records around like two thousand four, two thousand five, and pretty soon after that. Um, there was this tour back in the day called Deconstruction Tour. It was sort of like the European Warp Tour that Destiny Booking used to do. And it was kind of like the traveling circus of American bands in Europe. And we had just gotten signed to um, to Fat Records. And there was this band called Pepper that I think they were like a ska band or something, but I think they had like kind of like, kind of like a, a hit on the charts in America. And so they dropped off the tour. And so Fat called us and they were like, I hope you guys have passports because you guys are going to Europe in three weeks. So that was the first time I ever went to to Europe and I immediately fell in love with Germany. I just thought it was, I don't know, it, it felt like my speed. Good bread, good food, good beer. Everything was like pretty simple and nice. And I don't know, I just always kind of felt more comfortable in Europe than I did in America. Um, and then cut to 2013, Smoker Fire was here on tour. Uh, our first show of the tour, of six-week tour, was in Minster, where I live now. And I met, um, who is now the mother of my son. Um, and at the end of the tour, um, I came back here and spent a few weeks. And then I decided that I, I'd rather live in Europe than than in America. So um, I went back to America and worked three jobs seven days a week and saved up and sold all my stuff. And I moved to Minster a year later. Wow. Was that a tough move? For me, it wasn't. Um, I mean, I guess at the time, like looking back, I didn't realize, you know, I guess what what I'd really be giving up. I'd been traveling so much for so, for so long that it wasn't weird to me, you know. And I know that's weird to everyone else when I tell them that. But um, it wasn't weird to me to, to sell everything and move. 
Um, it just seemed like, uh, you know, that's what you want to do. Go do it. Um, and I don't regret it, but looking back, yeah, I guess it maybe wasn't the like most responsible thing to do, whatever that is. Well, I mean, was, what's responsible? Like, what did you have going on in America that maybe you could have stuck around for? Um, I mean, to be honest, like that was 2013, you know, I think like the things before that I had a six year marriage that ended in 2010 with my wife cheating on me. And, um, I had a business that ended, I had a house that I just threw the keys in the bushes after the relationship ended. And I think from like 2010 on, I just sort of said, I'm just going to see where life takes me. And so that's the way I've lived ever since then. I'll just see where life takes me. And so when 2013 came along and I wanted to move to Germany, then I was like, I'm going to move to Germany. I like that. Do you find the new philosophy works better for you? Just seeing where life takes you? I think it did until I had a son. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's when, when that philosophy usually will change in life because, you know, at that point you have to make it, there's somebody else that's a lot more important than you are. So um, up until having my son um, almost three years ago, yeah, it's always it's always put me in the right place to just kind of follow my gut and and uh, see where life takes me. It's it's always been um, it's always worked out for me, to be honest. And even now, like I have a son, and he's the most important thing in my life. But um, just raising him, I still kind of have that philosophy, you know, like oh, I guess life is gonna take us in the direction of blueberry pancakes today. So, you know, it's just a little different than moving to Germany. Blueberry pancakes is a great direction to head in, I have to say. <laughs> it always is. So how does it work with citizenship? Do you have citizenship? No, I don't have citizenship. Um, it was a really difficult thing. I had to decide like what sort of visa I was going to get moving here. Um, and of course, I was going to move here and kind of like pursue my solo music career. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to get a work visa. I wasn't going to get married. So that was out. So I applied for an artist visa, which is very difficult to get. And so that's kind of what I did. I, I, it was year to year. And the first year that I moved here, I think I played 170 shows the first year that I moved here. And then every year you go back and you have to keep like kind of, um, renewing your visa. Like you have to basically show them all your shows and the money you've made and say, Hey, can I stay and prove to the government that like you're living on your own and you're not asking for help and you're surviving like, and being successful. So, um, yeah, it's, it was a real kick in the balls to like really, um, be working hard every day and, and touring constantly just to be able to stay in a place that, you know, you're not at home very much. You know, I was touring constantly. Um, and I did that, um, year after year, pretty much, um, I got a job teaching English at like a pretty big company, um, here in town, which the visa office liked. And so at that point they started giving me like two year visas cause I was teaching English when I wasn't on tour. So that made things a little bit easier, but yeah, it wasn't easy. So you mentioned before in the span of a couple of years, you your marriage ends and you lose the house and you lose the business. Now that's pretty much getting hit at every angle all at once. How do you deal with that? How do you get through that? Um, I mean, I think just by doing like, like what I did, I think I, I think you have to go back to yourself and kind of like realize, you know, I, I think all of us do it at some point when you're in a relationship or you're in a situation where you're kind of blinded 
And then when it's over, you look back and you kind of see things clearly. And I think, you know, when all that stuff ended, I sort of looked at myself and said, oh, I guess I was trying to uh, grow up and I had pressure on me to do certain things. And when all that stuff went away, um, you know, it was my brother actually, Tommy, that pulled me out of that depression and said to me, my brother's brilliant. He went to Harvard and he's like an architect. He lives in New York city. He makes buildings and, but he's like a really down to earth and really amazing, smart guy. And when I was like at the lowest point, he said to me, you know, I, I, I know that you understand, like you think you have nothing, but really you can do anything you want. And so that kind of hit me. And I said to myself, yeah, I can do anything I want. It's true. I have no ties. I don't own anything. I have nothing. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. And I want to play music. I want to do what I always wanted to do since I was a kid. And so that was my decision. Um, I have no ties. I can do anything I want. I can go anywhere. And so that was 2010. And so, yeah, for the last 12 years, um, that's all I've done. I've been to 45 countries and um, moved to Europe. And um, I took his advice. I think that's good advice. I used to be caught in the misconception that it's too late to do certain things no, no. Or, or I'm too, yeah, I'm too old to do this or that, but it, it's not true. It's not true. You, it's never too late to start over. You can do anything that you want to do. I didn't get started with uh, writing my own music again or this podcast or anything else till I was 40. Yeah. And I, I actually think some people and most people are actually better for it. I mean, I, I think the older you are, actually the better off you are mentally. I think you know what you want. I think you know what you don't want. I think you're experienced. And I think um, you're in a better position to start something new than you were when you were young and a little more like irresponsible or, or not as experienced as you should be. So, I mean, I think it's just the opposite. I think the older you are, I think the better you are at it. You're absolutely right. When I was young, I was broke, mm -hmm. addicted, always spun up about some girl, and I had no means... <laughs> yeah mentally or physically or financially to get anything done that I needed to get done. Now I have the luxury of time, finance, my own apartment. I, I can get things done. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, same thing with like having a kid. I, I had a kid at 40 years old and, you know, physically, I think that that's a little more difficult for people because of sleep deprivation and the energy that they have. But I know that I'm such a better father at 40 years old than I would have been any time younger in life because mentally I'm so much better off. I think, um, I think youth is good for some things, but I think it's mainly for good for experience and then figuring out what you do want and what you don't want. Exactly. So a lot of what you went through, a lot of your experience in 2010 and later went into your First solo LP, Another Life, yes? Yeah, for sure. Talk about that a little bit. Was it difficult to transition playing by yourself or playing live by yourself? I mean, playing acoustic wasn't different for me. You know, I had always written everything on acoustic guitar because my philosophy on writing was always like, a good song is a good song is a good song, you know, in any format. And so for me, writing, it was always on an acoustic guitar. And I always thought... If I can't write a song that sounds good, simple on an acoustic guitar, then maybe it's not going to work with full band. Or if I can write a great song on an acoustic guitar, put it that way, then add all that other stuff to it, then all you can do is just make it better, you know, something like that. So like the acoustic thing wasn't different. 
I never really planned to play acoustic. I think there was a small time with Smoke or Fire where uh, there was a short time where there was a breakup where uh, someone left the band and we had to cancel a show or two. And we had this philosophy of never canceling shows, no matter what, unless it was like our van was flipped over, which a few times it did. But um, I think a few times I did play acoustic just so we didn't cancel. With the solo stuff, it was more of when I was writing lyrics and songs, I always tried to make sure that the band was represented. I didn't, I never wanted to say something where the band felt it wasn't a representative of all of us kind of thing, or it was like too far gone kind of thing. You know, it, it was something that was like, you know, we all kind of agreed on or we were in the, in the same ballpark. And I think like after I went through my divorce and uh, I was at this very low point, I was writing these very dark songs and they were acoustic songs and they were sad, you know? And I just felt like I couldn't bring these to the band and it wouldn't be right for me to put these out as smoke or fire songs. It didn't seem appropriate. It seemed personal. It didn't seem like, you know, this, this isn't their, their shit. So, you know, I, I thought, you know, this has to be a solo record. And so, you know, I wrote these songs acoustic and then, Kind of like halfway through, I just thought to myself, like, you know, fuck this. Like, I don't want to write this sad sack of shit acoustic divorce record. I want to make this into like a rock record, you know, and like take like the saddest songs I've ever written and make them like maybe a little poppy and make them sound good, you know, and make them sound like my parents' records like did when I was growing up, you know, like Billy Joel and stuff like that. So, yeah, I I don't know. I guess I really thought it was going to that record would would be completely shot down and shit on but um it became like a, a really a really good experience and got really a really good um reception actually yeah yeah it's great let's take it back a bit let's get to know you a little bit where in massachusetts did you grow up i grew up in rich uh, richmond massachusetts it's it's as far western massachusetts as you can get uh like on the new york border in the in uh, berkshire county uh, and then I moved to Boston, like when I was like 17. Talk about your entry point in music. Like, I, I'm curious where people come from. Were you into punk rock? Were you into hardcore? What was the scene at the time? You know, I grew up um, just absolutely in love with music since I was, since I can I like remember being born, to be honest. I started playing saxophone when I was in like third grade, but I had like absolutely terrible eyesight. I was pretty much like legally blind. And I think for some reason I had like this daredevil thing where I could hear music. I had like keyboards and things around and I could pick up instruments. And if I heard something, I could, I could play it and I could repeat it. I continued like playing jazz. Uh, I got into jazz music and saxophone. And then when I went to high school, I just picked up every single instrument around me. I started playing drums and bass. One of the guys taught me two, two chords on guitar and that was it for me. I bought a guitar that was all I really ever wanted to do was play music. But I lived in like a small town where, you know, like a lot of people like music is what you hear on the radio. It's funny because when we first got signed to Fat, one of the first interviews I did for a pretty big magazine, they asked me what got me into punk rock. And I said, Public Enemy. And they actually wrote me back and they said, what do you mean by that? And when I was a kid, Public Enemy was like the greatest thing in the world to me. I just thought they were incredible. Yeah. In terms of attitude and stance and anti-police and anti-establishment and all that 
punk rock and rapper hand in hand, as far as I'm concerned. To me, it was like, the, it was, I'd never heard anything like that. And, and that's the way I felt. I felt that, that anger and that all this bullshit around me. But I was a white kid in Western Massachusetts and I knew I wasn't going to be a rapper. And then uh, my friend Pete uh, in high school, I was 15, his uncle, everyone has their cool uncle or their cool older brother who gives them a tape one day. And uh, his uncle lived in Boston and used to work for the Mighty Mighty Bostones. And he gave Pete a tape. And on one side was uh, the Bostones and on the other side was Operation Ivy. And we heard Operation Ivy and we just lost it. You know, we just, we went and bought guitars and then we just started searching it out. And we heard Fugazi and we heard Rancid and anything that we could get our hands on. And then when I moved to Boston, I met in the first, my first day of school, my first class, this kid in front of me walks into our first illustration class and he's got a backpack with an avail patch on it. And I just poked him on the shoulder and I was like, Hey, do you play guitar? And he looked at me and he was like, what? And I was like, I play bass. Do you want to start a band? And he was like, okay. And <laughs> that's how I tried out for the band that became Smoker Fire. Yeah. It was much easier back in the day. You'd see someone with a shirt or a patch and you'd be like, you like that? Yeah, me too. Okay. Exactly. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it's funny because the, a couple of years ago, I was watching this uh, documentary on Netflix about hip hop and they were talking about how Rick Rubin saw public enemy and said to them, there's this punk band in DC called Fugazi and you guys are going to be the hip hop Fugazi. And I was like, that is so insane because when I heard Fugazi, I thought this is the same thing as public enemy. I remember this as a kid being like, these are the same thing. It's just a different world. And it's so crazy to hear that so many years later, like that was my attraction to punk rock was that it was like public enemy that I could play. Wow. That's pretty impressive that being that young, you could draw that line because I wasn't able to draw those lines until recently, I think, because I'll hear something and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a take on this. I don't know what I knew at the time. I was a kid. I just knew that like, I knew there was a lot of things around me that I didn't like and public enemy were the only band that was kind of like at the time, like, um, I mean, apocalypse 91, I was 12, 13. And I just remember just listening to that record and being like, Holy shit. Like the anger in that record and, and the, and also like how brilliant the lyrics were and everything. I just thought that was so incredible. And I didn't hear that again until I heard punk rock. And so to me, those two things, they were the same. The rest was just bubblegum on, on the radio. So talk about the early days of Smoke or Fire. You're with this friend of yours in class who has an avail patch. You're getting the band started, right? Right. So tell us about those early days and what the shows were like at the time. Well, I tapped on the right shoulder. Um, Chris, he was um, from New Hampshire, and he had come from a band called Born Ugly, who were you know, like if that was my band in high school, I would have been pretty happy with myself. They were a really, really good punk rock band. Um, they were playing up in New Hampshire, like the Elvis Room. They were opening for all the big bands coming through and they were in high school. Their singer, Andy, ended up um, moving to California to play with Screw 32. Um, and then I think he ended up with some of the guys. Um, well, he ended up in some really good bands out in California. But the rest of the guys in the band were looking to form a new band. And uh, yeah, they said, they said, you can come out and try, try out for bass if you want. 
So I, I went up to New Hampshire and uh, I remember taking a ladder up into a, the loft of a barn and trying out <laughs> uh, in the middle of nowhere. And then, uh, yeah, they called me like a week later and they said, hey, um, you can be in the band, but the guy that was going to sing isn't going to be in the band anymore. He doesn't want to do it. So if you want to be in the band, you have to sing too. And I was like, I don't know how to sing. And they said, well, that's kind of the deal. And I was like, all right, I'll sing. But I didn't know how to sing. But yeah, we just started playing together. And, you know, we started off like every other band. We we just took every single show we could. And luckily at the time in in Boston and around like uh, the coast of Massachusetts there and New Hampshire, pretty much all in New England, like there was all these like great little scenes at the time, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, like kids were on the scenes. There were shows in anywhere you could set up a microphone. There was a show back then. So every weekend, you know, you just, you just go out there and you play shows and some of them are big and some of them aren't, but like always a ton of kids. And that's just kind of like how we cut our teeth was just going and playing every single show we possibly could. Um, and then in the Boston scene, it was like, you know, it's like the ladder you, you do as a band back then you eat shit. You hope to get on a, like a opening opening slot in a shitty club, work your way up to playing second in a shitty club, maybe headline a shitty club, and then you get to open at a better club, you know? And like, that's what we did. We kind of like climbed the ladder up until eventually, you know, we were headlining at some of the good clubs, you know, just, you just work your way up. And what were the, were the shows pretty diverse back then? Cause Boston and the surrounding areas were unbelievable as far as bands and everything going on at the time. Would you, would you find yourself on pretty diverse bills? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, the hardcore scene in Boston in the late nineties was so huge. Um, but also like the indie scene and the emo scene, like emo, the old, like kind of, yeah, there, there was just all kinds of shit going on there. And all those shows would be put together. And, uh, it was, I feel extremely fortunate to, to have come up in that scene and, and to have, to have played, uh, with the bands that we played with. It was, Boston was amazing back then. It was really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the sheer amount of bands I'm, I'm envisioning like a converge piebald smoker fire kill switch engage show exactly. or something. It, it probably happened at some point. Absolutely has. <laughs> yeah. Travis from piebald was my boss at burrito max. Oh, so you worked at Burrito Max too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the, I've, there's a pretty uh, there's a pretty healthy roster of classic musicians that have worked there from stories I've heard on this show, and it sounds like you're one of them as well. Oh yeah, they put out a compilation record, Burrito Max. Oh really? They did. They put out a they put out a compilation record at one point, maybe around I would say ninety nine or two thousand. And the thing is, if you look at the roster on that record, it's pretty incredible. I have to look this up. It's this like sounds great. Pieball, the unseen. I mean, like it's <laughs> like every great band in Boston, everyone worked at Burrito Max. And of course, why wouldn't you? I mean, you know, the guy that ran the place, his philosophy was if you gotta go on tour, get your shifts covered. And if you're not on tour, cover someone else's shifts. So every band in Boston worked there. And when you went on tour, Somebody covered your shift when they were home. And when you, you know, like it was brilliant. And we ran that place so well because we were so fortunate to have a job that let us go on, on the road, you know? And so that's why that place was such a great restaurant because we, like, it was run by a shitload of punks 
who really, really cared about their job because how many bands, I mean, how many, how many bands get a job where you can do that, you know? Yeah. And the sense of community sounds amazing. Like, yeah, you cover me while I'm gone. I cover you while you're gone. And this thing works. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Is that place still around? I don't think so. No, no. I was going to say we need to get it landmark status. Well, I mean, there's talks with Casey from Iodine. He he wants to do a smoke or fire shirt with the Burrito Max logo on it, which I really, really want to happen. So that has to happen. Yeah, we'll see. But I did go back there. Like I, when I had moved down to Richmond uh, from Boston with the band, I did go back to Boston. The first time, the first thing I did was go to Burrito Max. There was no punk bands working there and the food was terrible. And I was like, you know, we had something there. We really cared about that place, you know, because that place kind of cared about us, you know, says a lot. Yeah. It's a time and place thing. Yep. So talk about when things started to pick up with Smoke or Fire. You signed with Fat Wreck, right? How did you, uh, how did you link up with them? We had moved down to Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, which was, I mean, that was the best decision we could have made. I mean, we loved Boston, but expensive city, you know, six of us living in a three bedroom apartment, working a bunch and we couldn't tour. It was just, you know, and we kind of met the guys from Avail and we'd met the guys from Strike Anywhere and some different bands and stuff. I mean, we couldn't tour. It was too expensive to live there in Boston and try to tour and stuff. So we ended up picking up and moving down to Richmond. We got this big, humongous house on Main Street, seven bedroom house. We, we wrote the record that uh, we got signed to on Fat. Um, in the in the living room, it was a good time, and and um, we sent our stuff off to Fat, never imagining they would call us back. At the time, I was working the midnight to eight a.m. shift at a diner as manager in Richmond, and I got home I think at like nine o'clock in the morning, and Fat Mike called me and said, "Hey, is this Joe from Smoke or Fire?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "This is Fat Mike. I want to sign your band." And I was like, um, "What?" Like I thought it was a joke. <laughs> Um, and he goes, yeah, are you guys cool? And I was like, yeah, I think we're pretty cool. And he goes, cool. Talk to you later. And that was it. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? I think for sure there was definitely like some help from avail there. I know that from what I heard, the fat office got the record. Of course they got tons of demos at the time. Um, from what I heard, they got our demos and they were playing in the songs in the office and the people there liked them. Uh, they kept listening to them and they kind of got to the point where they were kind of like, Hey, we should maybe play this for Mike. And so they played it for Mike and he said, yeah, this is good. What's up with these guys. And then Vanessa who worked at fat, I think she was friends with Tim from avail. And she was like, these guys are cool. Right. And Tim was like, these guys are great. We've toured with them. So I think that definitely helped us that avail kind of like vouched for us because, um, Fat Mike told me, like, we're the only band he's ever signed that he hadn't met before. Wow. Yeah. The first record we we did with Fat was Above the City. So talk about, you're on the road, you've got the record out on Fat, you're touring. I guess you saw uh, an increase in crowds and shows and, and all of that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Fat Mike isn't stupid. The first thing he does when he signs a band is he takes them on tour with no effects. I mean, that's just smart, you know? Um, so we had that. And then all of a sudden we had a booking agent, a very good booking agent, Margie. Um, so yeah, immediately we were on the road pretty much like nine, 10 months out of the year, all of a sudden on good tours. Um, we're out the Lawrence arms. We're out with against me a ton, 
Yeah. And that was it. And that's all, that's the thing. That's all we ever wanted to do is be on the road. It wasn't about being famous. It wasn't about making money. We just wanted to fucking tour. We just wanted to, you know, we just wanted to be like road dogs, like our favorite bands, like Avail and Hot Water Music and, and all these other bands. Like we just wanted to tour and it was amazing. It was incredible. So all of a sudden we're out there touring all around America, touring Europe, going to Japan, going to Australia. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. And Smoke or Fire has been together. You've never broken up, right? Oh, we've broken up a few times, I guess. Well, we, we're not the band that ever broke up. We had a few incidents where we couldn't be together. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a incident with, with a Czech Republic mafia threatening to kill us where we had to lay low for a few years. But, you know, things like that. That's normal. Yeah. Now, now I, I did hear about that story. We definitely have to go into some more detail there. Please, yeah. please uh, indulge us. Uh, we had, we had been on the road nonstop and there was a band that we had toured with in the States before, uh, some younger guys from Florida and they were like, Hey, you know, there's this European tour and it's going to be booked by this certain agency, which was a huge agency, like a place that, you know, this place does like Bruce Springsteen and shit like that. And they said, you know, um, it's going to be this amount of money. It's going to be this dates and all this stuff. And it all sounded very good to us. And um, we were already booked going off of like, Jesus, like eight months in America. And then we were going to Japan and then we were going to Australia and then New Zealand. And after that, we were going to go to Europe to do this tour that we were offered from this band that sounded very good. <clears throat> and we sort of like, we were, you know, we said, that sounds great. And so we sort of booked our back line and our, just a van, not a bus, but like, you know, one of those big Mercedes sprinters that a lot of American bands tour around in, in Europe. It's all your gear and like, you know, like eight seats and a loft. We booked that in our back line based on like what we were told, you know, we were going to get paid on the tour and stuff like that. And also like very confident in this agency, this agency that's, you know, has a, an amazing reputation. And so we got to Europe and there was no shows. There was nothing. And it was us like in this other band trying to scrap together three weeks of shows. Um, and this guy that was supposed to book the tour for that agency, like just didn't do it. So you're telling me you get to Europe and you're ready to play these shows and there there's no shows. Right. So you're, how do you find out there's no shows? Do you show up to the club and they're like, who are you? I mean, what happened? We kept, like, we were in, you know, Japan and Australia, New Zealand and stuff. And we're being told the entire time when we have internet, like, everything's cool. It's all straight. Everything's, don't worry about it. You know, just get here and blah, blah, blah. We got there and basically, like, uh, our driver was like, there's nothing I don't know where I'm going. There's, there's nothing here. There's no shows. Like there's a few things here and there that we, that might happen, but I have no it itinerary and nothing. Like, I think you guys are in the wrong place kind of thing. And we're like, you know, we looked at the other band and we we're like, what's going on here? And they were like, yeah, we're, we're all kind of fucked. And we're just like, what, what happened? You know, because <laughs> everything had been going so smoothly up until then. And we just assumed everything was going to go smooth and it just wasn't. And something happened along the way. And so, yeah, so we're there in Europe and we've got all this stuff rented out. And so we spent the next three weeks, they were trying to piece together 
shows here and there and all this stuff. At the end of the tour, I think we we owed the backline company 10,000 euros and we had no money. And uh, we didn't realize when we booked them and they were Vine people, but we didn't realize that they were connected to people that you don't want to owe money to. Let's put it that way. Yes. Now, what happened? Were, were these people that you don't want to owe money to in pursuit of you? They just made it very clear that they understood it wasn't our fault and that they knew we weren't trying to screw them over, but that if we played a show before we paid them back, that there would be consequences, to put it nicely. How did they communicate this? Uh, did they did they put it politely, like you're saying, or, or were they more direct? They were direct. <laughs> yeah, very direct. So it was like a uh, fuck you, pay me type of situation. It was more like if you play a show again before you pay us, some of you aren't going to be around anymore. Wow. So what did you do? We broke up. Oh, shit. Well, we didn't have any money. Yeah. It was like December. We, we all went home after like 10 months of touring with no money to our families we had no money and we had to break up. We didn't have a choice. What else do you do? I mean, we couldn't play shows. We had no money. We couldn't pay them. It was very, it was like a very defeating kind of situation. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, I guess we're done. Wow. Yeah. So what did you do? Did you have to come home and get money back together to send to this company? And what, uh, like, what do you do? I mean, we talked to fat records about, like, you know, we had this guarantee from this very large, large, you know, booking agency. Um, do we sue them? Do we like, what do we do about, you know? And Fat was like, I mean, you could sue them, but they're based in Europe and you'd have to go there and you're probably not going to win. And um, I think in the end, the agency fired that guy and they gave us a thousand euros, but that didn't do anything. And I sent the thousand euros to the people we owed money to. And I said, hey, here's a thousand euros. I promise we'll pay you back. Please don't kill us. <laughs> and so that was it. And then we just broke up. What year was this? 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. So how long were you broken up after this happened? I think like maybe three years went by and, you know, I was writing songs again for the band and I was, I wanted to make another record and I was kind of stoked on the songs and I called Jeremy, our guitar player. And I was like, hey, <clears throat> you know, I got these songs. Um, I really want to do another record. It doesn't sit well with me the way th that things went. Maybe we, we could record a record and we could go back to Europe and tour and pay these guys off and start fresh and then go from there kind of thing because this is hanging over us. And he was like, yeah, let's just give it a shot. And so, so yeah, we, we started, you know, getting in the room with these songs and we went to Chicago. We, rec we recorded the speakeasy. We went back to Europe and I emailed that those people specifically. And I said, Hey, we're coming back to Europe. Do not kill us. We will pay you at the end of this tour. Send a guy. Here are our tour dates. And we did a six week tour in 2013. And at the last show, this very large, scary man showed up and I gave him 10,000 euros and he made a phone call and he said, you guys are all okay. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Yeah. You know. That's pretty scary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That one, you know, that's the thing about being in a band is like, you know, one engine seizing, one fucked up 
promoter for a tour, like these little things can, can really, uh, shit in the Cheerios. I mean, were you upset during that time? Like the, everything is going fine and band is broken up. Uh, if you play Europe, you're going to be killed. I mean, what'd you do in the downtime? I mean, I was heartbroken to be honest. I thought like, yeah. I felt like we had worked so hard and we had, you know, from the time that we got signed to fat records until that point, we were on the road for years and we were, you know, we did that 50 state tour with against me unheard of 87 shows in 30 in three months. Like we just, we just did not stop and we were working so hard and we were really like, honestly at the top of our game. And then to have this one incident on this one tour break us up, you know, I was fucking pissed, you know, and I was heartbroken by that. Because the story I usually hear is band members are dropping off or people get tired of touring or, you know, audiences find something else. The the state of the music scene changes. You guys, from what you're telling me, it sounds like you just wanted to be out on the road, which you were, and you were playing and you were on tour, which you were, and everything was going great. And then this one guy at this agency kind of fucks things up for everybody. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. We just hit a wall. We, I mean, we were rolling. We were doing so well. And, and this one kind of incident was like, wow. We don't even want to break up, but we have to, <laughs> you know? <So. laughs> Did anybody entertain the idea of still playing in Europe to see if the uh, associates were serious about their threats? Not at all. No way. They were serious. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Uh, you. I think you can tell in those situations. Yeah, no, no. We. They were serious. Yeah. We had other people tell us, don't even think about it. So you got back together. You You did the tour. You paid off the folks. Everything was okay. Did things pick back up again? Are you playing? Are you are you back out on the road? We thought so. You know, that was the thing. We we sort of felt like you know we had this great six week tour in Europe in 2013. We paid these guys off. We got this you know the Speakeasy record, which we were extremely proud of, and uh, we started making all these plans, you know, to tour again and stuff. And then someone in the band, you know, sort of got a a better offer from a bigger band and left. And then things kind of fell apart very quickly. So that was sort of it again. You know, it's like, it's like that, uh, like any other relationship, you know, you get hurt and then you get your hopes up. And I think we were at the point where we, we had our hopes up again, that things were going to be great. And then one of the members of the band got a huge offer with his other band to be on a big tour and was like, sorry, I can't do all that stuff. And then someone else in the band was like, you know what, fuck this. And so that was kind of it. So where does Smoke or Fire stand now in 2022? Now we know that we have Beauty Fades coming up on Iodine Recordings, and we're going to talk about that. But Talk about the band. Where are we in communication? Is there plans? There was talks before pandemic, but there's been nothing about touring since. I mean, and that's just that that doesn't have anything to do with the band. I haven't made any plans in over a year. I mean, I've watched every band book tours and make plans and everything gets canceled and I mean, I haven't made plans in over a year. I'm waiting for anything to get kind of like level there was talks before the pandemic started of doing some shows and tours and stuff but as of right now there's nothing 
in the works. Yeah, things are so unsure these days. I've seen bands cancel the same tour three, four times, and then they have to rebook everything. It it sounds like a real pain. Yeah, and I'll tell you, the other thing is, it's like, you know, I've been asked to do um, a few tours to fill in on, on guitar and things like that, that were uh, postponed and things like that. And now those tours are getting canceled in Europe because the clubs are so backed up for two years that they're not booking tours for a year or two right now, a lot of places. So it's tough. Yeah. If I wanted to book a tour right now, it'd be for like 2024. For me, it's a little bit easier. I can play some pubs in smaller places, but like for like touring bands and, and, and other, you know, traveling big, bigger bands and stuff like that on, in bigger venues, the clubs are so backed up for two years that like, yeah, there are, there are bands that are booking two years ahead right now. It's crazy. I was supposed to do a reunion tour with Arliss Nancy in October and the booking agent canceled it and said there's no clubs available for the next year or two. When this whole thing started, I had someone on the show, a musician, and they said it was uh, Chris Hornbrook from Drummer of Poison the Will. And he said, let's see, this was March that we spoke to him. And he's like, yeah, they're thinking next February, maybe things will open back up. And I remember turning to my co-host afterwards and being like, yeah, right. It's not going to last this long. And here we are two years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I stopped at a certain point because I just watched all of my friends' bands get canceled over and over and over. And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to wait until things seem a little more steady to even book anything because it's just not happening. You could potentially sink the band if you book a tour and it ends up getting canceled halfway through because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's, you know, for me, that's, it's not the end of the world. I live in Germany. So if I have to cancel a European tour, that's one thing, but a band from America with, you know, flights, travel guarantees, like the investment it takes for for an American band to come over to Europe and have it canceled. That is devastating. Well, the good news is Smoker Fire has a beautiful new record coming out on Iodine Recordings, Beauty Fades. And this contains the 2002 Workers Union EP, which originally came out on Iodine, and some other unreleased material. Yes, yeah, it's um, it's it's all remixed and remastered. It's yeah, it's the EP that kind of never really kind of came out and saw the light of day, and then it's a bunch of um, unreleased songs and rarities. It and it's 20 years old. It's insane to me that there's <laughs> a record coming out of songs I wrote 20 years ago. <laughs> It's got to feel good, though, right? Because I've been in the situation where a band is gearing up to release something new and I'm really excited about it. And then it never comes out because the band breaks up or one reason or another. So now we get a second chance here. It's such a unique opportunity, right? I mean, how many times do you get to put out a record 20 years after and actually like, you know, with with the things you've learned and also the things that the engineer learned to remix and remaster and make it sound even better and like it's pretty crazy it's really crazy to me i was so against the idea at first you know when casey was talking about it because i thought to myself like well i mean i didn't listen to this stuff in so long and i said well this isn't gonna hold up you know but then i you know when it when the idea kind of gained some more ground i started listening to the songs and i was like fuck i love these songs these songs are great and then I started kind of getting a little bit excited about it. And then the songs started getting remixed, you know, and Ethan, the guy who recorded the record 20 years ago, uh, remixed them with like, you know, his uh, 
20 years of experience and they sounded incredible. And it just, yeah, it kind of started getting exciting. How did things change from before pandemic till now? Like, were you on tour a lot more before the shutdown and then you wouldn't be as home with your son as much? I mean, the funny thing is, is that I had been on tour since I moved to Germany in 2014, like full time. Um, he was born in 2019 and in Germany, you get 14 months maternity leave between both parents, uh, paid leave. And I was burnt. I was very burnt on touring at that point. I knew that I needed a break. I needed a break from, from the road, which means like it says a lot because I love traveling and I love touring so much but i knew that i was burnt and i knew i needed a break so when when my son angus was born um his mom took eight months and then i took the last six months after that so that was the beginning of 2020 january i had planned to take off six months from touring and stay home with my son and then two months later there was corona so like i just never went back to work i planned on taking off, taking off six months and i just never went back to work so at first it wasn't weird at all because I had planned on taking a break. And honestly, like after six months, when it was extended another six months, I was kind of like, it's okay. I'm enjoying like hanging out with my kid and having quality time. And like how many people get to do this? It's all good. And I mean, I still feel that way today. It's he's the only, like, he's the only reason that this is I, that I feel like I can't complain about, you know, my experience with the pandemic because a lot of people have had it way worse. But I mean, the last time I toured was 2019. And after 20 years of touring, like, it's fucking weird. It's weird to have not played shows in so long and not toured and, and been anywhere. It's really weird. Yeah, because it sounds like you still really enjoy it. And it sounds like it's still how you provide for yourself and for your family. So it's got to be weird to not have been able to do it for the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, it's weird in many ways. I mean, it's weird in the sense of like, I miss it a ton, but having a kid is like, changes you. I know everyone says that it's pretty cliche, but. It has to be true though. I mean, it has to be, it probably changes your outlook on a lot of things and it for sure changes your daily routine. Yeah. I mean, my daily routine was basically like, you know, singing songs about poo-poo uh, and pee-pee like, like three times a day, which I'm very good at. I should make a children's record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just doing like rap songs and, and sing songs about poop three times a day. But more than that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it changes a lot of things. It changes the way you, you look at your own health and your own mentality and all that stuff. Like, you know, to go from like being a nomad touring for 20 years to having a kid it's a pretty different experience um so yeah you have to change a bit and then also through the pandemic like i don't know I'm, i think i'm one of those people that i don't necessarily ever understand why people listen to what i have to say you know and the pandemic to me is just i don't know I'm so disgusted with humanity, I guess. Like, I don't know, really know what I have to say about things right about now. I mean, my, my new solo record is probably will get me like banned from America and everywhere else when it comes out. But, <laughs> but I think then that means I'm doing something right. But like, 
I don't know. I don't even know what I have to say anymore about, about things. It's uh, everything's just so insane nowadays. I'll admit I'm pretty unplugged ever since the pandemic kicked off. I've gotten deep into YouTube and nostalgia and classic gaming and current gaming. And you're smart. Yeah. I'm unplugged. I'm because, because I don't have the fight in me anymore to try to bring people to my side of the fence. Or if I log on to Twitter and I see people still screaming at each other about, uh, you're wearing a mask, you're not wearing a mask, you're getting vaccinated, you're not getting vaccinated. I, it, it might sound a little cold, but I, I don't care. Like, I, I know what I need to do. I like to protect myself. No, but you put that the perfect way. You said that the perfect way. That's, I, I said that, um, I said that in an interview a couple of weeks ago and I felt bad saying it, but I was asked about, you know, this, this record beauty fades of these songs from 20 years ago coming out and what I thought about it. And I thought the songs hold up. It's just weird for me to hear that, that kid 20 years ago, because I don't have that fight in me anymore. And it makes me sad that I don't have that fight in me anymore because I had so much fight in me. Yeah, you, you put it the right way. You have a kid now too. Like you're, you, I'm sure most of your mental energy is spent looking out for your child and trying to provide the best life you can for him. Of course, of course, of course. But it doesn't mean that like I need to be less of a person. I still feel exactly the same way I did when I wrote those songs 20 years ago. I just don't. You know, I, I guess there's something along the way where I'm not, I'm not out there at the protests like I was back then, you know, willing to, you know, get arrested or beat up or whatever else, because something along the way, I just, it's not that I, my mind changed. I feel exactly the same way as I did when I was 19 writing those songs. I just feel like it's a fixed game. Yes. And I can spend my time better making my son a good man than f than swimming against the current that I'm never gonna, you know, get past. Exactly. I'm exactly with you on that. I go back to the quote from the great TV show, The Wire, the game is rigged, but you cannot lose if you do not play. That is a great quote. Yes, that's, that's how I feel. Yes. And then, you know, that's, that quote will honestly, that'll answer the question when people ask me why I moved to Germany and why I left America. You know, that's pretty much the reason, you know, I, I exercise my right to not be a part of it. Yeah, I don't I don't participate in the game. I see I see it all as a game that pits us against each other and I refuse to participate. And it's disappointing to me when uh, I see people, friends, family still caught up in it. And I want to be like, no, like this is all a facade. We could we could remove ourselves from this and work together. But it. We're too deep in it, Joe. We're too deep in it. I know. I know that. I know that. And it's weird because, you know, I've lost so many friends from just leaving who I thought felt the same way. I thought I was exercising my right to not be a part of. I mean, that's what we always talked about. And that's what that's what all the bands sang about was like, you know, if you don't believe in this, fuck it. You know, like break it or leave it. And I honestly, at a certain point in my life said, you know what? I don't want to be in this country anymore. And I'm going to exercise my right to leave and try to be happy somewhere else. And I, in some ways, you know, people have thought that was a really great thing. And in other ways, very close people to me have never talked to me again that I thought, you know, thought differently about it. So you're telling me 
that because you moved to Germany, you have friends that won't speak to you anymore? Absolutely. Yes. Are you serious? For sure. Yeah. I lost a lot of my best friends. You're telling me some of your best friends won't speak to you anymore just because you moved to Germany. I wouldn't say just because I moved to Germany, but I wouldn't say it's because of that reason specifically, but I can tell you most of them went away. That's disappointing to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard realization that misery loves company. You know what? I My new philosophy is I used to be like, if someone's philosophy didn't line up exactly or close to mine, I would just write them off or say they're a bad person or whatever else. But I try to circumvent the system by being agreeable with everybody. As long as they're not an extremist, like if they're a neo-Nazi or a racist or something like that, they're they're hopeless in my mind. But, you know, I have friends who are Republicans and work for Republicans. I have friends who are hardcore Democrats. I try to not get involved in their philosophy so much and just connect with them on a, a people level. Because I think fundamentally people are good, even if their beliefs differ from ours, like they want to do right by themselves and their families. So I'm not going to bash them over the head if they're if their philosophy doesn't line up exactly with mine. People are good, you know, people are good. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. the, that is the most um, surprising lesson that I've learned in my life. Same here. Because even if, even if they have a bad belief, I think it's just something they heard someone else repeat in a lot of cases and they, they don't even really know what they're talking about. Well, of course. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's a few, there's a few different sides to it. If you want to get into it, I don't know, into my philosophy, but... Yeah, we've got a little time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I was young, I thought that humans were terrible. You know, I was young and I was angry and I was born an Irish Catholic. So <laughs> anyone who Same knows... Same here. Yeah, well, so you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I came up very jaded and I thought uh, humans were not the best thing in the world, to be honest. And I was fortunate enough to travel and play music and meet people and travel around the world. And I learned that people are actually inherently very good. Most people in this world are very kind, good people, which was surprising to me. And they, they all pretty much want the same things. And that there's a very small percentage of people who are fucking it up for the rest of us. And so... My feeling towards humans were went from that were greedy, selfish assholes to my belief that our greatest fault as human beings is that we're passive. We let bad things happen. We let terrible things happen that don't affect us. We're passive. We're not bad. We're not evil. We're passive. That's our biggest fault. Yeah. That may, I mean, yeah, you're really making me think now. Yeah, I've experienced it too, where where something bad is happening and everybody just stands by. And I'm like, no, why? Why is this happening to me? Why doesn't everybody take up arms and support me? But that's that's really just not what people do. You know, they, they don't want to interrupt their lives uh, or their social constructs or everything else. And it's not necessarily that people don't care. It's just that this is the way that the world is constructed now. This is the way the world is, is that you have to look out for yourselves and you have to... I mean, look at look at what's going on. Like we we're talking about a hundred years since you know the Spanish flu and hundred years ago pandemic. How much is different then? 
how much how differently did we react since then and now look at like what's happening with ukraine and and uh, and russia with all the technology and everything that we've learned over the years like and everything to our disposal like how much are people ever going to really change because the people that know how to fuck things up are always going to know how to fuck things up and the rest of us are always going to sit there and go like uh what i think a lot of people still believe that the powers that be have our best interest at heart and the said fact of the matter in my personal opinion you think people really believe that the people in power have our best interest at heart i think a lot of people do i don't think anyone believes that i think there's a lot of people that genuinely believe that really i think most people think that it's all a joke and there's nothing they can do about it maybe subconsciously maybe not out loud but like do you think people really have faith in the people in power oh absolutely really yeah just look at the last election. Yeah, but it's a, it's so silly. It's a two par- it's a two party system, which automatically is absolutely insane. I think that there's a lot of people I know out there who think like whether they're Republican or Democrat, it's like oh, we just need to get rid of Republicans, and then everything will be okay. Or oh, we just need to get rid of Democrats, and then everything will be okay. Yeah, this is why they, nothing will change in America. We have a two-party system. It's absolutely insane. I mean, how can a country succeed when half of the country wants the country to fail until four years later when their party's in power again? I mean, it is the most insane idea ever. You know what? Is there any vacancies in Germany? I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going yeah. to move there too. I should make a pamphlet because I get these questions all the time. Let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, number one, we've got Smoke or Fire, Beauty Fades, the vinyl releases on May 27th, and we have to pick that up, right? Yes. We have to. You got it, and pick it up quick because it's selling pretty fast. Yeah, so folks, pick that up. That's number one. And number two, you said you've got a a new solo record coming up? I'm going to go record a, a new solo record in the next few months, yeah. So it, we're not at the stage where we can announce anything yet. No, no It's yet. happening. That's going to happen, yeah. Can I make a shameless plug? I'm going to uh, uh, the place that I record. I uh, recorded my last solo record, and I'll, I'll record my next one. Uh, it's a studio in Antwerp, Belgium, called uh, Big Dog Studios. And I'm headed there next month to record this uh, solo artist from Scotland named Billy Liar, and he's absolutely amazing. So anyone listening should check out Billy Liar. His first record I produced, and we're going to do his next record next month. He's incredible. Awesome. I'm going to check it out. I tell every guest this, but when I'm editing the episode, all of the artists and songs that they mention that I've never heard, I jump on YouTube and listen to them while I'm editing. It's my favorite part of this whole process. Yeah, check out his record. Uh, We did it a few years ago, and the thing is, is we did it, and then pandemic. He actually got signed to Red Scare. Uh, with Toby from Red Scare Records and he had all these tours and all this great stuff lined up and the the pandemic happened and uh, it all got canceled. So we're basically going to do his second record before his first record ever got listened to. But um, yeah, his first record is called Some Legacy. Check that out. It's on Spotify and all this other places. But he's, he's, I think he's one one of the greatest songwriters out there in, in, in a long time. And he's got a very cute Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) So, Joe, I just want to say thank you so much for making the time and coming on the show. This was a great conversation and love the music. I'm looking forward to more. So thank you. 
Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There you have it, folks. Joe McMahon. I loved that conversation. It was great to hear from Joe. It was great to hear all about the history of Smoke or Fire. And, you know, that story of the band having to break up because of uh, the mix up with the European mob is just classic. Classic. That is a first for a reason for a band breakup. We cannot play a show or we will be murdered. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was it was great. I'm, I always love a good Burrito Max story. I have never been there. I have never eaten there. But I feel like I have because I think every town, every scene has a spot like that. And, you know, just hearing about Joe's life and his decision to move to Europe and some of the fallout from friends that he had because of his decisions, I respect his choice. I respect his decisions and why he made them. So, I wish him all the best. You know, he's a great guy and it was an all around great conversation. So thank you once again, Joe, for coming on the show. So let's check in, folks. Huh? How are we doing? You and I, how are we doing? It's great to be back here recording the show. I built it in so I had some time off during the week of Memorial Day. So I'm back to the full grind now. And you know, it's funny. It's like no matter how much you do in a weekend, it just never feels like enough. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, I went out Friday. I went out Saturday. I went out Sunday. And I was like, okay, I have Monday Memorial Day all to myself to sit here and do whatever I want. And I sat inside for the entire day and played Warzone. And that was it from like 10 in the morning until 10 at night. And I felt really guilty for sitting inside. And I was like, oh, man, I should have done something. But then I was like, wait, you did do something. You did something every day this week with friends outside doing things. So it's, you know, I guess it's just like no matter how much time there is, there's never enough time. But it was great to just sit around and do nothing but play video games all day. Let me tell you. And I'm also working on new music. I am starting a new band with people. I got a bunch of guitar pedals and a delay and various things and I'm trying to figure them out and it's somewhat difficult but I'm getting there you know this is something I've been talking about doing for a long time and I'm finally doing it and I'm happy that I'm making progress I also hope the band gets to the point where we're ready to play some shows I'm trying to focus a little more attention on that to get us there I'd like to be playing shows again by the end of summer you know I haven't played a live gig since 2016 and I miss it. I really miss it and I would like to be performing again. So I'm working on it. Other than that, you know, uh, I've been playing a lot of Warzone. I'm grinding for a Caldera solos win with no vehicles. Admittedly, I, I have used a Bertha or other vehicle to kind of cheese my way into a win. And look, a win's a win, I know, but I would like to win solo on Caldera with no vehicles. I have done it before, but I want to do it again. I just get into a jag with this game where I want to accomplish one specific thing. And that's what I'm doing right now. They took away Battle Royale solos though, and they have this new mode called King of Caldera. I played it for the first time yesterday. And guess what, folks? First time on Warzone Victory. So I want to let all of you know, I am the King of Caldera. 
I'm also playing Mario 64. First time playing it since launch. I'm going for the 120 star run. Have never done it. Getting closer. That game is a lot of fun. I don't remember the controls for Mario 64 and for the Nintendo 64 being this atrocious back in the day when I played it. The camera is tough. The controls are hard. But listen, the game is so good, it it doesn't matter. I'm playing it, and I want to catch up on some other Nintendo 64 classics. I'm also playing the Quake relaunch. There's two new chapters. Those are really fun. Quake multiplayer you can play now with the new platform on Steam. That's a lot of fun, and you know that's what I do in my downtime. I play video games, and it's fun. I've got my travel and ticket and hotel booked for Furnace Fest. I can't wait to go again this year. I can't wait to see Sunny Day Real Estate and Elliot and the 900 other great bands that are playing. It's going to be a lot of fun. I want to do some kind of live event from the hotel, maybe like a live, go live on Instagram and recap the day and, you know, maybe have some people from bands in there too, talking about what's going on and just talking about the fest and the bands we saw and everything. You know, it's it's going to be great. I can't wait. So, That's everything that's going on with me. Busy, busy, busy all the time with the show. And, you know, we've got more big guests coming up. We've got more exciting co-hosts coming up. This thing is only going to keep growing. And I'm very excited that I get to do it and that you are with me here every single week. So that's it. We're back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. (laughs) 